0: So what have we been doing over these last few weeks? We've been looking at the covenant, the covenant that God makes with us human beings, choosing to make us his estranged children, his children within his household again. God sovereignly, graciously takes the initiative and reaches out in the person of Jesus Christ to draw us back into relationship with him. And so we've been looking at what the nature of that relationship gives us and and, and what it is that we find as benefits of that relationship. And we saw that, of course, a relationship with God where we have been adopted into his family as children means that we now have a new identity And that that new identity, when we embrace it and fully live into it, means that we have a change in the way that we understand our confidence because now we're not confident in the things that we can achieve. We're not confident on the basis of our performance in any way. Now our confidence is based entirely upon our identity. Our identity as children of God means that we have an entirely different approach to confidence. And because of that, we, of course, begin to engage with what confidence will give us as children of God. We represent our Father. And in representing Him, we have confidence to do that because He gives us the authority and the power so to do. Well, that authority and power is really uh, the themes and the subjects that will help us to understand the next big subject that we'll look at in the coming weeks, which is the subject of kingdom. We've been looking at relationship, and soon we'll be looking at what it means to take responsibility for representing God. We'll be looking at what it means to represent Him as King, now that we know for sure that He's our Father. So today I want to complete our time with the covenant, not that we won't return to it on numerous occasions in the future. I want us to complete our time by looking at some teaching of Jesus that is really profoundly illuminating about the covenant. Jesus told numerous stories in his life. He, of course, was the greatest teacher the world has ever seen, and in teaching the principles of relationship and responsibility, Jesus often used stories. And those stories, those parables, are often positioned and and understood to be parables of the kingdom. And so we'll look at the parable of the sower. It's a parable of the kingdom. Jesus says the kingdom is like The kingdom is like a net, the kingdom is like a a man who, who sought out a pearl, a man who found treasure in a field. He positions them as stories of the kingdom. But there are just a few stories, particularly in the Gospel of Luke and in the Gospel of John, that are not so much parables of the kingdom but parables of the covenant. They help us to understand what the relationship is all about. That picture of the vine in John chapter 15 where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches and together we bear fruit that would be if you like a parable of the covenant the parable of the good samaritan tells us what it means to have relationship with other people on the basis of our relationship with God and so it's a parable of the covenant and here in Luke chapter 15 we have three short stories that have captured the hearts and minds of millions of Christians down through the centuries. We have the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. What I want to do today is I want to just introduce this chapter a little bit and then spend our time looking particularly at the parable of the lost son. If you have your Bibles with you, Uh, I'd encourage you to look at Luke chapter 15 uh, and at verse one because what I want to do first of all is to understand the audience that Jesus is addressing because the audience falls into two very clear categories, two very clear camps. And it's uh, right at the very beginning of this chapter that Luke lets us in on that particular picture. It says this, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around him to hear. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. And so Jesus then goes on to speak about a shepherd, a figure in the culture of the day of ridicule shepherds would be the butt of many jokes. The, jo- the, the, the kind of butt of jokes that is often found in different cultures around the world. I, I have Irish heritage. I come from, from Britain, but my, my heritage is Irish, and the Irish have often been the butt of English jokes in the same way that Polish people have been the butt of jokes here in North America. The butt of the joke in the time of Jesus was the shepherd. And so people are probably listening to this story as the beginning of a joke. You know, it's, it's like he's, he's saying, so there are three guys and they walk into a bar. And everybody knows that this is going to be a joke. And so when Jesus says, there's a shepherd and he has a 100 sheep, they're thinking, okay, so what craziest thing has he done now? And sure enough, The shepherd does a crazy thing. He's lost one of his sheep and he leaves 99 in the open country to go and find the one that's lost. Now, it may well be with time elapsing and cultures changing that we don't quite pick up that sense of comedic tension in what it is that Jesus is saying but I'm pretty sure that the people at the time would have understood it. And of course, the scandal is that God is the shepherd. God is the butt of the joke. God is the one who will go to extraordinary measures to go and find one lost sheep. Then Jesus switches it up, just as scandalous He now positions God not as a foolish shepherd, but now as a woman. In a culture where the average Pharisee would pray maybe three or five times a day, I thank you, Lord, that I was not born a Samaritan or a woman, he positions God as a woman having lost one of her 10 coins. Perhaps the coins were on the headdress of the woman. Maybe that's what's being referred to, which would have indicated her status, her significance within her social circle. Losing one of those coins would be a major disgrace, a great dishonor, huge sadness. But the coin is lost within the household. It's still within the home somewhere, and so she sweeps the home. She scours the household, until she finds the coin. And when she finds the coin, she does exactly the same thing as what the shepherd does. She calls people together and she rejoices. For the sheep that has wandered away from the flock, there is rejoicing in heaven. From the coin that's lost within the household and is rediscovered, there is rejoicing amongst the angels. Jesus is speaking to different parties within his audience, those that are like wandered sheep away from the flock, those within the household who are still there within the home but are lost just as much as the sheep that's wandered away. And then Jesus goes on to tell this remarkable of stories, the story that is perhaps remembered as one of the most significant and memorable in Scripture. Here in Luke chapter 15, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now it's important just to pause there for a moment because this is a really important element to the story. Something that perhaps we wouldn't understand looking back from our culture and our perspective, we would maybe miss something that's really important here in what it is that Jesus is saying. Everyone that was listening to him would have understood that when a person divides their property between their heirs, it's divided equally amongst all of the children except for the oldest son. The oldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. And so the man dividing his property would have divided his property a third to the younger son and two-thirds to the older son. Now, it's really important that you get that because it's kind of undergirding the story and helps us to understand the interaction between the father and the older son later on in the story. Let's continue. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, it wouldn't matter who was in the audience listening to Jesus, they knew what he was talking about. He was talking about a place in the Gentile world that was considered by all who lived in Israel to be a place where God had cursed those people and would be territory that would be considered unclean. Any Jew returning from a journey to another country would have to go through rituals of cleaning to cleanse from them the uncleanness of the, of the Gentile world. So, going off to a distant country meant that this young man was cutting all of his links and choosing to live an unclean life, an unblessed life, a life that was, that was beyond the pale, beyond the blessing and the call of God. Verse 14 after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who set him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, when he came to his senses. Now, the, the words there that we have translated into the modern translation kind of give us a sense that he kind of woke up and came to a realization. He, he, he came to a kind of a, a surprising revelation. Well, it, it includes all of that. But actually, when you look at the original text, it says this, when he saw himself for what he was when he saw himself as he actually was. You see, there's, there's a realization about difficulties that you're going through. There's a realization of maybe doing good or bad things. But actually seeing yourself as you are is a huge revelation. This young man, got to a point of observation and introspection that allowed him to see beyond the surface, the surface conditions of his hunger, the surface conditions of his poverty, so that he could see himself as he was. How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. The realization was not simply an internal reality, but now had been translated into external behavior, external action. Repentance is sometimes thought of as an internal thing. Of course, it begins in our heart and mind. The reorientation of our life is a change of mind, is a change of heart. But the change of mind and the change of heart and the change of orientation means that behavior changes, means that the things that we do change. Our body follows our heart and mind. And so he gets up. And sets out. Look what it says halfway through verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now there would have been a sharp intake of breath at this point as Jesus was telling the story. This is a man of substance that is being spoken of here. This is a man of privilege. This is a man of status within the culture and society of Jesus. Everybody would understand that anybody with property enough to distribute to his children would be a person of real substance within the community. And such a person would not be waiting for a lost son. The lost son would be grieved over and then considered dead. But the father is longing for the son to return. And he sees him a long way off. You can almost picture him, can't you, on the flat roof of his house every day, patrolling the home, looking to the horizon, waiting for that figure to appear in the haze that he knew was the sign of his returning son. And then he sets aside all dignity. No one in the time of Jesus with with this kind of status would ever do anything than walk slowly from one place to the next. He pulls up the skirts of his coat and he runs towards his son. And he embraces him, throws his arms around him and kisses him. Rubens, the great Dutch painter whose painting of the prodigal is found in the hermitage in St. Petersburg, portrays the father embracing the son in the most remarkable way. Perhaps he's reflecting on the whole chapter where God is presented as both father and the woman looking for the coin. But you see this strong, powerful man embracing his son who is broken and beaten down. And the two arms embrace the son holding his weight. But when you look carefully, you notice that one of his hands is most certainly the hand of a working man, and the other is the hand of a woman. Our father, of course, is both parents to us. He's both protector and nurturer. He is the one who gathers us in with compassion and protects us with strength. The father gathers up the son and kisses him. And the boy has been rehearsing his his speech for days now. He's been walking home from that far distant country and he wants to get his speech out. The son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't get a chance to complete his speech. The father turns around while still holding on to his son and says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The father knew that the boy was broken, knew that the boy had repented, knew that the boy had returned. That was enough. He places upon him the robe that indicates that he's a member of the family. He puts on his finger the ring that indicates he's a son with all of the identity and authority that a son should carry. And he puts shoes on his feet to show that he's not a slave or a servant, but a son, a child of the household. The house, of course, comes alive with music and feasting and dancing. Now, when I was a kid, you know, we we maybe, as I was maybe five, maybe six, got a television, black and white one. Those folks in England weren't as rich as those folks in America who had color television by that stage. And there wasn't that much on television. We had, I think we had two channels, and if you couldn't find what you wanted on the two channels, then the, it wasn't available. And so on a, on a Saturday morning, we'd, we'd all go down to the Saturday matinee at the cinema, and we'd watch Flash Gordon, and some other B-roll movie about cowboys and Indians or something, I don't know. And I always remember, that in the middle of the cowboy movie, a voice came over and said, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Do you remember that? You young people think, he's talking about ancient history, what is it? Verse 25, meanwhile the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now there are two groups in the audience of Jesus. There are the group of tax collectors and sinners and they would know what it's like to be estranged from God, to be considered by everyone in the culture to be a long way from God, and if they are children of God, they're lost children. And so hearing the words of compassion that Jesus portrays about their condition would no doubt have caused their heart to sing. But Jesus has equal compassion on people like us, people who are religious, who were raised in a strict home, who were given expectations of behavior, standards that we were expected to live up to. People like us who Though we speak of liberty in the Spirit, so often find ourselves trying to gain God's approval by doing the right thing. And in in trying to gain God's approval by doing the right thing, we're, of course, living within a framework that, that the Apostle Paul would call the law. And he would say that living that way will kill you and the first way that you'll indicate to yourself that, that it's killing you is that, is that because you never, ever, always hit the standards that you want, you find that you become frustrated. And the frustration leads to anger. And the anger is an emotion looking for a reason to be there. You're not angry about anything, you're just angry. And it comes out with your children, with your spouse, with your friends, with your work colleagues, with your politicians, with your neighbors, with, 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 it comes out. The frustration builds up because you have this standard that that you know you have to meet and if you don't meet it then God won't be pleased with you and if God's not pleased with you then maybe he'll leave you and if he leaves you then then what are you to do? Maybe, Maybe God's presence isn't there and maybe I'm not under his protection and maybe I'm not gonna be provided for. Maybe I need to redouble my effort. Maybe I need to get other people around me to redouble their effort. We religious people are being addressed in the parable too. Look at what it is that the Father does. You see, the younger son was rebellious, but he knew that he was a son. The older son was religious and so believed that he was a slave. All these years, I've been slaving for you. But when this son of yours, not his brother, this son of yours, he's, he has this mentality of servitude. He has this mentality of, of having to work to gain approval and find the blessing. But the father does exactly for the older son what he does for the younger son. For the younger son, he runs to meet him. For the older son, he goes out to the field to find him. For the younger son, he, he reminds him of his identity. For the older son, he says, I'll never leave you. You're always with me. I'm always with you. I'm never going to leave. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you fall below the level of your standards or below the level that you think are my standards. I'm not leaving you. I'm never going to withdraw my presence from you. And what's more, you're an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. Everything I have is yours. How many things? Everything. Now this is stunning news. Because the good news that rescues the lost son is the good news that redeems the older son. So what is, it, what is it like being that older child, that older daughter, that older son? What's it, what's it like to live with that level of anxiety of not living up to the standards? And, and what does that level of anxiety do to a person? Of course, it creates a great burden of shame. Let me tell you a, a story told many, many years ago. I discovered it when I was a brand new believer as a teenager. It was told by a man called Larry Christensen, and I've kind of retooled it for a more contemporary age. It's the story of a man who lived in a trailer park. Nothing wrong with that. It's a noble kind of place to live. But the problem for this guy who lived in the trailer park was that the landlord was terrible. He feared his arrival at his door. He was not just gruff, he was aggressive. He was not just unpleasant, he was rude. He was not just there to make his presence felt. He was there to make his tenants afraid. He would hear the sound of the landlord and the palpitations would begin, his hands would begin to shake, his mouth would get dry, he would go to the door and crack the door and there would be the angry face of the landlord. Where's my rent? Well, you would go and get the rent and pass it to the landlord and there'd be no conversation. The landlord would pocket the money and walk away. On one occasion, it actually got worse. He opened the door. Where's my rent? Well, I, I don't, I'm afraid I, I got laid off at work. I, I, I don't have all the rent. I've got some of it. You ain't got my rent? Well, I, 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 I can get it next week. Well, you're going to have to pay it with interest. He's walking away, obviously angry, shoulders all bunched up. And a piece of trash blows across the path of the landlord as he's walking away. He picks it up, turns to his tenant and says, what's this? it's, um, It's rubbish. This is trash. And it's your responsibility. This place, it's all mine. And you pay rent to be here and you've got to keep it clean and every piece of trash that you see around here, you keep in there. I don't ever want to see it again. Well, now he's in double panic because he's got to to raise the money for the rent every week and he's got to keep the place clean and it's quite obvious that the landlord's not going to do anything about the trash and so the trash kind of builds up inside the trailer home. I mean, he's got one of those little bags underneath the sink and that's all full and he's got all the trash that he's picking up out of the yard and, I mean, he doesn't know what to do. So he takes that little room in the back of the trailer and he he uses that to kind of store the trash. It's a desperate situation, He's, he's terribly afraid and he's He's totally broken by it, but he's got nowhere else he can go. I mean, what is he supposed to do? Then one day, there's another kind of knock at the door. He says, that's a jaunty knock on my door. So he goes to the door and he opens the door and there's a completely new face, a smiling face. And the person says, hello, I'm the new landlord. The new landlord? Yes, I've bought the whole park, all of the trailers, and I've decided to make it the big investment of my life. Oh, and what about the old landlord? I bought him out. Really? I don't have to meet him again? You never have to see him again. I'm the new landlord. Well, that's amazing. What's the rent gonna be? He said, well, we've decided to change a few things on the rent. The Guy's heart begins to sink. He's thinking, Phew, it's gonna be terrible this. He said, we've decided not to ask you for any rent. It's free. We've decided that the investment is enough. You, you keep your money. Maybe you wanna fix some things up or do some things with it, but there's no rent from now on man can hardly believe his easy. There's, there's no rent? Well, who, who's gonna pay for all of this? It's already paid for, says the landlord. I paid for all of it already. Oh, okay. Well, he's, he's kind of in a, in a bewilderment and he, he sees the new landlord walking away down the path and a piece of trash blows across the path and he panics, he, he runs out and he picks it up and puts it in his pocket. He said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I, I, it's, it's not normally here, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And your landlord said, well, what are you doing? He said, oh, you, know, I, you know, I'm just doing the job. You, you know, I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to clear up all the, all the trash and, and keep it in, in the trailer. The landlord says, what? He said, well, you know, the deal, the, the arrangement. I, I'm, I'm keeping the arrangement, you know, I'm, I'm keeping the trash and, you know, I'm doing my best with it. The landlord said, you're keeping all the trash inside that little home? He said, isn't it kind of getting out of hand and doesn't it smell? He said, well, it, it may do. I don't know, Who, who's been talking? Because if it's that neighbor, I could tell you some things about their trash. He said, no, no, no. He, he, then United said, no, no. It, what I'm trying to say is, I deal with the trash. That's my job. He said, well, how do you deal with it? He said, well, you just put it outside the door and I take it away. He said, no, you, you can't do that, it's my trash. No, it's mine. It's my job. I'm the landlord, you're the tenant, you put the trash outside the door, I take it away. Well, he he can't believe it, he goes back to the trailer, he thinks, I'll just try it. So he just takes a small bag, puts it by the door, and he hears a kind of rustling, and he goes out, there's nobody there, but the, the trash is gone. This is incredible, so he goes and gets another bag and he puts it, and sure enough, it goes every time. He doesn't know where it goes to, he doesn't know who comes and gets it, but it's gone. It is a mate, what a life. A complete (laughs) transformation. The new landlord has changed everything. Oh no. Are you kidding me? It was all a joke? He goes and opens the door a crack. He he fears the worst and there in front of him, the face of the old landlord. Where's my rent? Well, I've spent it, because the other guy, I mean, I don't have it. You ain't got my rent? I'm gonna be back and you're gonna pay interest. Well, he's just, he's just in a total panic now. He closed the door. What am I supposed to do? He opens the door. It's the new landlord. He said, I just wanted to check. There's been, there's been some sightings of the old landlord. He's been around causing trouble, Trying to extort money out of people? What, yeah, he, he came. He says he's coming back. What do I do? Well, all you do is you call out my name. What, just call out your name? He said, yeah, you, you just call out my name, and the old run—the old landlord will run away. I wonder how many of us live in the shadow of the old landlord. Paying penalties for sins. Hiding our guilt. Covering our shame. I wonder how often we listen to the voices of condemnation that tell us we're going to have to pay with interest. I wonder how often we listen to the voice of the old landlord instead of recognize the presence of the new. That he paid for it all. And he takes away all the trash and he doesn't care what's in it. As we come to communion today, we come to do the thing that Jesus tells us to do because he tells us to take the bread and the wine in remembrance. Now, that's a a great way to translate what Jesus said. The word that Jesus used that's in the text of the Bible that we translate as remembrance is the word anamnesis. Everybody knows what amnesia is. Amnesia, amnesis, is, is to forget who you are. Anamnesis is to not forget who you are. So this is what Jesus says. He says, take this bread and this wine and don't forget who you are. Do this in anamnesis of me. So do this remembering me, recalling me, but do this understanding that what I'm saying to you is that as you remember me, you don't forget who you are. Because who you are is a child of God, who God will never leave, who God will always bless, who has received and is the recipient of all of the inheritance of the saints. You are a child who has power over the devil. If you'll only call out on your identity. The old will pass away. So Paul in Corinthians says this. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, take eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. If you would like to come and share in the bread and the wine this morning, we would love for you to do that. If you're gluten-free, then the station over there is for you. Let's come and let's remember. And as we remember, let's not forget who we are.